Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's March 2022. This month, we will be talking about non-ventilator-associated hospital-acquired pneumonia, a topic that has been addressed in a number of papers recently published in Itchy, including in the March 2022 issue. I'm joined today by two individuals who have studied and published extensively on this topic. In fact, each of them has published several papers in Itchy over the past few months, including in the current issue. My first guest is Diane Baker. Dr. Baker is a professor in the School of Nursing at California State University in Sacramento. Also joining us today is Michael Klompis. Dr. Klompis is the hospital epidemiologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and a professor in the Department of Population Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. I think that non-ventilator associated hospital acquired pneumonia, which maybe we can refer to as non-ventilator HAP for brevity, is a great topic to discuss in this forum because it gets a lot less attention than many other HAIs. And I suspect that many of our listeners are not as keenly aware of or focused on this as compared to other HAIs. So maybe a good place to start this conversation is with some background information about the pathogenesis of non-ventilator HAP and how and why it happens. So, so first of all, just, just thank you so much for the opportunity to have this conversation today and to shine a bit of a spotlight on uh, NVHAP. Um, as you point out, it's probably an underappreciated entity for many people. Um, which is concerning because it, it, it's actually the most common healthcare associated infection. Um, that's based upon CDC's cross-sectional prevalence study that they conducted back in 2015, um, looking for healthcare associated infections across about 200 US hospitals. And uh, they found that, uh, that pneumonia was the most common healthcare associated infection and that the majority of these, about two thirds were non-ventilator healthcare associated uh, pneumonia. And um, the irony of that is that most hospitals don't pay particular attention to this at all. Many have robust programs for tracking and for preventing ventilator-associated pneumonia or ventilator-associated events. But numerically, NVHAP is actually the more common event, and yet we don't pay as much attention to it. It's as severe an event as ventilator-associated pneumonia. It has a mortality rate of 15 to 30%, depending on which study you're, you're looking at, which is basically exactly the same as ventilator-associated pneumonia. And so, and so in many ways, there's been a gap, I think, in many of our current uh, surveillance and prevention programs and uh, deserves more, uh, more attention. Great. I think that's a really good background to start with. And this is happening, basically, it could happen in any patient in the hospital. It sounds like we're not, it's not focused on just patients who are on ventilators. So what is the, the pathogenesis and, and why do patients who aren't on ventilators develop uh, pneumonia while they're in the hospital? Yeah, I don't think we have a perfect understanding of this. I think that our best understanding is that um, people, even in health, all the more so in illness, re recurrently aspirate. That's from micro aspirations that will include the, any organisms that are inside the upper oropharynx. And uh, that the body has a complex homeostasis taking place with these micro aspirations where there's a, an underlying microbiome uh, that moderates the body's response to these organisms and that many times the body's immune system will simply take care of this and these will self-resolve. But occasionally uh, these events um, for unknown reasons elaborate and blossom into full-blown pneumonia. There are certainly 
patients who are at greater risk for this compared to others, it does preferentially affect sicker patients, patients who are um, either frail, who have underlying neurological conditions that facilitate more aspiration, people who, have, who are already suffering severe disease, anything that disrupts these, the swallowing mechanism, people with feeding tubes, either nasogastric or orogastric are, are associated with this, this phenomenon as well. Proton pump inhibitors may play a role. So there's lots of that's, that's appeared that, that can be taking place, but that's felt to be the basic pathophysiology is aspiration of oral pathogens that in some cases for ill-understood reasons pro progress onto pneumonia. I think there are some important considerations that happen in the hospital. We, there are several things that we do that disrupt this a microbiome that the lung is exposed to in the oropharyngeal cavity. For one thing, it's very common for hospitals to omit oral care and maintenance of the oral microbiome. We provide medications that dry the mouth. We give medications that suppress cough. We immobilize patients in bed. Their glucose is often dysregulated. Um, so a combination of the patient coming into the hospital plus the status of the things that we don't always carry through with, such as oral care, I think sets up a perfect storm for NVHAP. We do see it across the spectrum of all patients, even in the healthy young. I've even seen non-ventilator hospital-acquired pneumonia on the maternity ward. So we know that it has a broad reach and all patients carry some risk for this. I think that's a great segue into maybe another topic, which is you know, how preventable are these infections? You know, we have some pretty good data for several of our other major HAIs where we know that the great majority of those can be prevented uh, with some fairly simple evidence-based prevention strategies. And I think, Diane, you talked about some things that we do differently in healthcare settings than perhaps happen in the community. So maybe this is a good place to talk about how preventable are these and what can we be doing to try to prevent them? I think we're in early stages of research about this because there hasn't been a focus or a radar from the CDC and other regulatory agencies asking healthcare to look at this. But there have been over the past decade, several single site studies, several non-randomized studies, but certainly promising studies that indicate that there are things that we can do that directly impact non-ventilator hospital-acquired pneumonia. Um, there's been several oral care studies where oral care has been enhanced, and that's really primary infection control, uh, maintenance of the oral microbiome. Kaiser Permanente in Northern California had a long-term quality improvement robust study that focused on mobility. It was published in ISHI, and that study was also interesting because when they did control their NVHAP, they also significantly reduce their antibiotic prescriptions for hospitalized patients, important to all of us. But we are in early stages in terms of understanding true prevention and looking for those solutions. Thank you, Diane. Mike, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I mean, I think Diane has, has summarized it well. It's, it's a complicated area because I think that many of the patients who do develop NV have sort of notwithstanding some uh, some notable exceptions are the sicker patients um, they're older they have more comorbidities about a quarter of the cases occur inside of ICU populations um, and disentangling 
what's the contribution of NVHAP to their deaths versus their underlying conditions and, um, and the severity of their illness is difficult. And a number of studies have tried this. They've tried to sort of compare patients who get NVHAP to similar patients who don't get NVHAP and try to adjust for demographics and comorbidities and severity of illness. They still do find that patients with NVHAP are five to 10 times more likely to die compared to similar patients. But again, one always wonders about the quality of the risk adjustment in these, uh, these studies. As Diane was alluding to, that the best way, we, or the only way we're going to answer this is to put into place prospective prevention practices and to actually see what it does. And th thus far, we have a lot of uh, single center, unblinded, before, after, or minimally randomized studies that allow for the possibility that a good chunk of these might be preventable. But, but each of those studies right now has sort of significant uh, limitations that, that, that just limit our confidence in knowing how true and how big that effect actually is. I think the bottom line is that we've identified this as a clear problem, as a frequent problem, it's a morbid problem, and that there are promising strategies to try to prevent it. And now the onus is on us to put those things into practice and see what we can do. And that, I think, takes us to another great topic for discussion is how far along are we with implementing those possibly or probably effective prevention practices in our hospitals. And I know, Diane, you've done some research on this, including uh, a survey that is published in this month's issue of ITCHI. Can you talk to us a little bit about the implementation of some of these prevention practices and what the status of that seems to be? Yeah, thank you for asking about this. Um, I do get emails every week, sometimes five to 10 emails from infection preventionists and nurses and other leaders in hospitals interested in preventing NVHAP. So I think the awareness is there. The types of things that we think are promising in preventing NVHAP are pretty straightforward, oral care, mobility, managing dysphagia. So we decided to do a survey and look generally at what's going on in the country, how, how much interest is there in this and how prepared are hospitals to move forward. And what we found was that there were very few hospitals that are monitoring or collecting data around NVHAP. Um, very few hospitals have protocols to prevent NVHAP. And then in looking at those um, promising practices such as enhancing standardized oral care for all patients, not just those on a ventilator, um, we found surprisingly that about 20% of hospitals don't even provide a basic toothbrush, much less toothpaste or any way to clean the mouth. If you can imagine being in the hospital four to six, 10 days, and no one is thinking about your oral microbiome and the rapid growth of germs, only about 60% had standardized mobility protocols for patients outside of the ICU. Interestingly, we did find one hospital that is directly tracking NVHAP related to COVID and using uh, antiseptic mouth wrench with all their COVID patients to prevent secondary pneumonia. So there is definitely is some interest in looking at these things, conducting quality improvement projects and transferring promising practices, but we're a long ways from even being ready to address this with basic protocols and equipment in the hospital. And I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about underappreciation, under recognition of this as a problem and, and implementation of prevention. But I think there are other aspects of 
hospital-acquired pneumonia that, that further complicate this issue, and one being the, the challenges we have with making a, a diagnosis and how sometimes that can actually even lead to over-diagnosis and over-treatment, even though we're now talking about it being underappreciated. But um, so it's sort of a double-edged sword here, I think. And, and you both contributed to a, a commentary that's in this month's issue of Itchy, sort of addressing that aspect of hospital-acquired pneumonia as well. Is that a topic we should talk a little bit more about here as well to kind of round out our discussion of hospital-acquired uh, pneumonia? Let's, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the challenge of diagnosis, I think, is really the starting point for why I think uh, this is, a, is an underappreciated issue from a surveillance and infection prevention point of view and a, um, a too frequent issue from a antibiotic utilization and patient management point of view. And let me, let me try to explain those two sides of the coin. The, the core problem is that diagnosing pneumonia is, is really um, subjective. You're asked to pass things like change in oxygenation, increase in uh, respiratory secretions, change in the character of patient secretions, new infiltrates on, uh, on, on chest x-ray, change in temperature, white blood cell count. And each of these components is either very subjective, think a change in secretions or interpretation of radiographic infiltrates, or very nonspecific fever, white blood cell count, et cetera, or in many cases, both. And I uh, think for yourself, a positive culture, for example, is that, um, is that, uh, is that a colonizer or is that an invader? And uh, what, what the implication of that from a surveillance point of view is that it's actually very difficult for a hospital to implement surveillance, which I would argue is sort of the necessary precursor to, to a robust prevention program. Right? You, want do, you want to do a prevention program and know if your prevention program is working or not, or whether it needs to be modified to better uh, address the problems trying to prevent. And because those pneumonia criteria are so subjective, that means that they're very labor intensive. And it means you have to dedicate a great deal of infection preventionist or nursing effort to try to track these, these events. And historically, I mean, I think that explains why we historically have only looked at vent that associated pneumonia, because that automatically carves out, gets rid of 90% of the hospital population and allows us to focus on a much more smaller subset so that this very sort of labor-intensive work can be done on a more manageable subset of the population. And so the challenge of surveillance, I think, have been a real barrier to, uh, to, to prevention. And there, there is some work being done that hopefully will allow us to better leverage electronic data to do that in a more efficient and therefore a more manageable kind of a fashion. But I think that's still very much under, under, under development. The other side, though, of this challenge of diagnosis is, as you alluded to, is that the clinical bedside, it's often a dilemma knowing whether the patient has pneumonia or not. A patient gets a, a hospitalized patient gets a new fever, or you see a wise rise in the white blood cell count, or they, you see um, the deterioration oxygenation. And it's difficult to know with certainty in the moment. Is that pneumonia? Is it, so if it's bacterial or viral? Is it heart failure? Is it pulmonary embolism? Is it atelectasis? Is it a drug reaction? You know, there are all sorts of possibilities. But at the end of the day, the doctor has to make a decision, treat or not treat. And because the philosophy for so many of us is, I don't want to miss a serious infection. And therefore, clinically, most people will err on the side of treatment. What that means in practice is if you go back and you put in your sort of retrospectoscope, and you look at people who've been started on antibiotics for possible hospital-acquired pneumonia, and you try to work out when the dust settles, do they actually have pneumonia or not, based upon their clinical trajectory and what else you were able to discover about the patient. I mean, it, it turns out that at least a third, probably two thirds of these patients do not have pneumonia. 
So there's a sort of a massive problem with overtreatment as well that's driven by our diagnostic uncertainty. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of room, I think, here to try to improve on both the surveillance side and on the clinical management side. The needs are different in those two spheres. On the, on the surveillance side, we, we need, I think, uh, automatable, efficient, and you know, objective surveillance definitions so we can track the entire hospital population electronically without having to require infection preventions to parse each case. On the management side, what we really need is rapid diagnostics that'll better let us know in uh, near real time, A, is the patient infected, yes or no? B, is it viral or bacterial? And C, if it's bacterial, what's the resistance profile of that pathogen? So we can choose A, whether to treat or not, or B, uh, what to treat with. And so I think that those are sort of the real, real needs we have in those two, two spaces. Diane, anything you want to add? No, I thought that summarized it all, all very nicely. I just one thought that I have is that Mike didn't mention that he is working on and has... <laughs> I think almost impressed, right? A article that is going to help us with electronic surveillance and the electronic medical record and look in an efficient uh, data-driven way to not only extract your NVHAP cases more accurately for surveillance, but also to allow for early identification. That will be a complete game changer. And they've written the code in SASE so you can adapt it to any of the various electronic medical record systems um, once it comes out. So be on the lookout for that publication. Yeah, so, so Diane's right. We, we did create a pilot strategy for electronic surveillance of NVHAP, published actually about uh, two, three years ago in German Network Open, sort of laying out the, uh, the, the criteria. And we actually published a um, clinical validation of the study in ITCHI about two years ago as well, where we looked to see what the clinical correlates were of uh, events that were flagged by the electronic definition. And in a nutshell, the electronic definition works uh, reasonably well. It, you know, it solves the problem of efficiency and objectivity. Um, it does not solve the problem of clinical specificity. And, and therefore, in, in some ways, has the same limitation as a human being that, that there's a lot of, uh, that, that, that can't overcome the, the, the core problem of limited accuracy of clinical science. But, but by solving the objectivity, reproducibility, and efficiency problem, at least it makes surveillance feasible. But what we've now done is we've applied that definition as a, a large-scale validation to, to, to electronic clinical data from the VA and from Healthcare Corporation of America, from HCA Healthcare, and been able to sort of better characterize its performance characteristics and uh, has given us, I think, a, a better glimpse into the actual incidence of uh, NVHAP and the associated mortality. And as, as Diane says, that will hopefully come into the public space sometimes this, uh, this, this year. And we have taken the code in order to actually find these events and, and that will be also made publicly available for free as well. That's fantastic. I look forward to, to reading more about what you found. And I think maybe that's a good opportunity to, to talk a little bit about the National Organization to Prevent Hospital-Acquired Pneumonia, or I love the acronym NOHAP. Um, and you were both authors on a paper that was published in ITCHE back in August of last year that was titled Non-Ventilator Hospital-Acquired Pneumonia, A Call to Action, Recommendations from the National Organization to Prevent Hospital-Acquired Pneumonia Among Non-Ventilated Patients. Could you maybe take a few minutes to tell us about NOHAP and the needed actions that your group has identified in that paper? Yeah, NOHAP was really organized and called together by Dr. Shannon Monroe with the VA healthcare system. 
and her passion in addressing NVHAP among veterans. And she, she was able to use the VA Innovation Network as a resource to call together a national think tank, which resulted in the recommendations from NOHAP. And it covers the questions that we still need to answer around pathogenesis, uh, recommendations for intervention, as well as future research. It's a state of the art and, and where we need to go and was literally a call to action. And you're talking about one of the number one hospital acquired harms in US hospitals today that is still not regulated. And this group came together to really shine a light on that hidden harm sitting in our hospitals. It's a very comprehensive paper. Um, Mike was the major editor at the end. And again, it's resulted in my inbox and my email is just inundated now with people wanting help. So they heard the message. And I think we're beginning to really organize a push forward. One of the most sentinel things that came out of that is that the Joint Commission published a national safety alert in September of 2021, alerting hospitals to this harm and making recommendations for interventions. And you can find that just by going to the uh, Joint Commission Patient Safety Alert. It's number 61. Great, thank you. And I do, if, if, for listeners who haven't seen that paper, it was published in August of 2021. And I do encourage everybody to take a look at that. So from our discussion today, it seems pretty clear uh, that we probably all have work to do in our hospitals with regard to reducing the risk of NVHAP and the impact that it has on our patients. And with that in mind, and perhaps knowing that just getting started and overcoming organizational inertia is often the hardest part of this kind of work, what one tip or piece of advice would each of you give to someone who's interested in starting or advancing NVHAP prevention work in their hospital? And particularly thinking, is there one thing that we could all do today to get this ball rolling? Yes, I would recommend distributing that call to action paper among your key leaders, raising awareness around NVHAP and extracting your data. And even though the ICD-10 codes are not perfect, they will certainly give you a good picture of trend over time. And I think once you open Pandora's box and you look at the rates of NVHAP in your hospital, leaders will be compelled to start addressing this issue. Yeah, I, I agree with Diane. I, I think the first place to start is to, to measure, to try to get some sense as to the size of the problem inside of your hospital. That's with regard to incidence, with regard to mortality, with regard to antibiotic utilization, with regard to ICU utilization, with regard to, to, to length of stay. And um, as Diane alludes to, the results will surely shock you and hopefully will be the, the spark to try to tackle this problem. Those are great suggestions. And I also think you know, from reading your survey paper that was published this month, Diane, kind of going back and checking to see what our own hospital policies are for some of these basic prevention strategies for oral care and mobilization could also be a, another good way to, to get started with this work. But I think that's a great place to end the discussion. And I'll remind listeners that last month's podcast, the February 2022 episode, 
featured a discussion of implementation science uh, that was related to antibiotic stewardship, but the concepts and methods described are equally relevant to the topic of NV-HAP prevention, where there's also a pretty large gap between knowledge and practice. So I would encourage people to listen to that if they haven't already, and to read the paper upon which that discussion was based, which appears in the February issue. And so thank you both, Drs. Baker and Klompas, for this great discussion and conversation and for your contributions to the field, uh, including your work that was published in the March 2022 issue of Itchy, which is now available online. I also want to thank our producers, Lindsay McMurray and Barry Wilhelm. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast. Thank you.